So this whole series has been about the values of living in the kingdom of God and how that sometimes looks or feels upside down to the way that the world operates. And I remember um, in, in the first week of the series, Victor led in with this, uh, this discussion. Before we even got into the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked to, I mean, uh, not Jesus, Victor talked about, excuse me, the kingdom of this world and what the kingdom of this world values. So check this out. Do you remember this? The kingdom of this world values power, comfort. You can see these on your fill-ins. Uh, success and celebrity status. Nod your head if you remember Victor going through those just a few weeks ago, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason I remember these is because Victor was, uh, he was shooting me in the chest that day, it felt like, right? Because these things are difficult. And, and each one of them, in certain degrees, I think we as Christians, but me specifically, I like to look at those words and go, well, that can be bad, but it's not always bad, right? And I, I look at it as, well, there's the good elements in there. And Victor said, neither, none of these are on their own sin, but as Victor talked about them and how they are values of the kingdom of the earth, I realized how much of my own sin struggle, of my own struggle to love God the way that I'm supposed to, struggle to love others, comes back to these drives and how the world is teaching me that these are worth seeking and these are worth living for. And I'm realizing that no, they actually cause great anxiety in my soul. They cause great um, dichotomy between God and, and myself. They don't, they don't bring harmony or life to me. And, and that really uh, was a struggle for me as we started. But as we get into talking about today, I want to just remind you, these things can be and often are at enmity with living in the kingdom of God, okay? All right, so let's jump in. As I was looking through, what do I wanna talk about? What is a kind of a backwards thing that we get mixed up and, 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 and it looks upside down to the world? And again, continuing with this theme in the Beatitudes, the Lord began to speak to me on uh, Matthew 5, 7. So check this out. This is the fifth Beatitude that he, he brings out. Jesus says this, these are red words, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Let's read it again. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Can we pray together as we start this morning? Dear Jesus, we ask, Lord, that you would take this very simple message about mercy, about the mercy that you've had for us, about the mercy you call us to extend to other people. Let it transform our hearts and challenge us with something new from your word this morning. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Okay, so this morning we're gonna move pretty fast, um, but I'm gonna start off by sharing with you a little bit of a, maybe a guilty pleasure that my wife and I like to enjoy together, and that is this. We think that we know right from wrong, and we love having long conversations about what other people deserve and what they get. Let me, let me put it this way. What we like to do is we like to watch these uh, documentaries or docu-series that show the inside of some elaborate illegal scheme, right, that happened, that people were taken advantage of or hurt in some way, and then we sit back and we talk about it. Man, I'm glad I'm not them, right? Uh, and it's so much fun. But as we get into it, uh, Samantha, I always uh, criticize her for 
playing what I would call like the devil's advocate, right? There could be a guy who's just abusing everyone around him, and she'd go, but, but you know, you don't know what he's been through, right? No, and I'm just, <laughs> and I'm like, Sam, you know, and she uh, accuses me of being, you know, a little stubborn. I think she calls it a stubborn charm, something like that. Uh, she's not here to say otherwise. But we go back and forth on these things. Now, in most of these circumstances, there is a clear right and wrong, but the conversations are still fascinating. So this morning, I'm going to share just a few of my recent favorites uh, that it, I encourage, you know, if you are interested in these kind of uh, crime podcast type things, check these out. So the first one is Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. All right, has anybody watched this already? You can wave a hand. Yeah, some of you have. Okay, this is super interesting. It just came out on Netflix, and if you can't tell what's going on here, it's a documentary about polygamy about uh, a group of people here in the United States that believe that uh, you should have multiple wives. And can I just stop right there and say that's enough to talk about for a while, right? Um, but here's what happens in this community. The, the leader of the community begins abusing other people, and he begins taking advantage of other people. Uh, and so I encourage you. It's super interesting to watch. Fascinating, actually. But there's a pretty clear definition of, okay, this guy, maybe he started off with okay intentions, but he turned into a monster, and somebody needs to take him down, and they did, and it was cool, right? Um, all right, the next one is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This is a lot more sad to me because this Mars Hill is actually the title, the name of a church, okay? It was a church out in the Seattle area, um, and, and what happened there was uh, there was a guy who has been accused now in retrospect of being a domineer bully of a pastor. Um, he would take advantage of his folks and, and, and use very crude language from the stage, but especially in private meetings with his people. Uh, one of the most atrocious things that happened in this podcast was um, there's records of him saying some very violent things towards, uh, towards women and people of other races. And, and so looking back, it kind of puts a, this shadow on all of his ministry. And my wife and I, again, as we're listening to this and we're discussing it, we're like part of us uh, lamenting what happened here and also part of us going, I hope that the Lord will help us never to, to be that blinded, you know? And at the same time wondering, this is a good guy with good intentions. Where did he go wrong? But it's so fascinating. Number three is gangster capitalism. This is a, a sounds kind of like a crazy name, but this is specifically the story of the Liberty University downfall. Um, where the president of Liberty University was arrested because he was using uh, funds to basically fund his own vacations, flying all over the United States with his family, and yes, getting involved in some nasty scandals, all with the money uh, that he was using from Liberty University. Very twisted, messed up thing. And this one is actually fascinating because it's ongoing. It's right now still information coming out as they publish the podcast they had people from Liberty University who were hurt come to them and want to share more about what's going on. Again, um, fascinating conversations come out of these things. Next uh, is one, you can tell already what this one's about, right? This one is a cult documentary. And uh, my wife and I, I'm telling you, like these are like, we turn this on and we just veg out for like an hour to this stuff, you know? In this one, uh, this guy... He claimed to be uh, a version of Jesus that came back to the earth. And so, of course, all these people bought into it, and it's a, it's a very sad story. 
uh, of what, what all that went on there. But this is the story of a man who escaped that cult. Uh, and then finally, I'm sure many of you followed this documentary, recent history here, right? Uh, pretty sure everyone in your workplace probably had an opinion on what's right and wrong in this one, right? This has been a conversation piece, the, the Depp v. Heard trial and, and, and all that it entailed, you know? Um, but the thing is, not just my wife and I, but others who have taken in some of these same interesting uh, documentaries and moments in history that, that we have, I think so quickly we love the conversation of right and wrong, but it also moves to justice. You know, in this one, who deserves what, right? Or punishment. Maybe somebody's liable for something. But maybe sometimes we miss the point on all of this. Um, I, I, was, I was considering my actions and how how much I enjoy discussing. Well, you know, so glad that, that Depp won, you know, right? And, and, and how I feel so excited about sharing that. And there was like kind of a text message that went around my small group the day that it all happened. And it was like, woohoo, Depp, you know, Johnny Depp took the victory. Everybody was kind of laughing about it. There's a feeling though in me of like arrival or a feeling of strength, you know, that I was on the winning side that I was the person that had it, had it right, you know? And it seems like fun and games when you're talking about two celebrities that are really, you know, quabbling in court, and it's, it's so funny. But, but when you talk about church stuff, you know, like Mars Hill, or even the, the Christian University, Liberty University, it, it's, it, it's, it's a little more serious, you know? But it's still sad, but it's also kind of like it doesn't affect our lives personally. But this hyper-focus on you know, justice, what's right and wrong, what do they deserve? It really comes to a head when it's applied to our relationships in community. Our family, our friends, our town acquaintances, you know, or even our, our, our fellow countrymen, like our neighbors. When my need to be right, to punish wrong, or to be on the successful side of an argument outweighs my tendency to have mercy on an individual, that's a problem. And that's really the crux of the whole message today. And, and I speak for myself first and foremost, but that is exactly the trend that I see at work in the church kingdom. Sometimes we get so excited about being on the right side of something that we miss mercy in the transition. But Jesus did not ask us to be arbiters of others' fates. He asked us to be merciful. Jesus did not ask us to be, arbiter is kind of a fancy word, like referee. Imagine that if that helps you. He did not ask us to be a judge of others' fates, what they deserve. He asked us to be merciful. He asked us to be merciful. So all this talk of mercy, right? You might be asking, what is mercy or what is merciful? How are you defining that this morning? You remember Matthew 5, 7 where we started, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. The word there used for merciful is a Greek word and it's called Ella Amon. 
Eleemon, something like that. Eleemon, here it is. Uh, and it is a tendency toward mercy combined with action. Eleemon. You guys want to say that with me? Ready? One, two, three. Eleemon. Let's try it one more time. One, two, three. Eleemon. It's kind of a difficult word. It's, it's one of the harder ones. When I first read it, I'm like, nope, not going to try to pronounce that. But then I spent 30 minutes on YouTube listening to videos, and I figured it out. So, okay, um, it's a tendency toward mercy combined with action. In other words, it's a general disposition of a person toward compassion, you know, toward empathy. I love that the, the, the connotation includes empathy. It's feeling what others feel. It's a general disposition toward that emotion combined with a practice to see that mercy enacted, in other words, you're not going to rest until that mercy has come to pass. This can be exemplified in Jesus' example that he gives later in Matthew 5. And uh, this is specifically talking about enemies, but I think it applies here. Jesus talks in verse 30, uh, 38, yeah, Matthew 5, 38. Check this out. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other, or turn the other to him also. Pause there for a second on verse 39. A person that accurately lives out Jesus' command in Matthew 5, 38, to turn the other cheek, right, um, is living out of an attitude of mercy, a standing disposition of mercy. How? Well, we see no retaliation here. He doesn't retaliate or flex up or try to defend himself, right? Um, and we also see no need to be right or successful. Usually if a person is defined as an evil person, they're probably the wrong person in the argument. And yet Jesus is not saying to make it right. He's saying to turn the other cheek. Only an act of uh, compassion and mercy can do that. Not one of, that's not what I deserve. You treated me wrong. No, it's, it's mercy that, that leads that person to turn the other cheek. Yeah, but you might be saying, what, wasn't Jesus talking about loving your enemies? How can we apply this to, to general acts of, of right and wrong, right? Maybe he wasn't just showing us that we should let people walk all over us. And that's not what I'm saying this morning. I mean, Paul says that when we love our enemies, it's like heaping coals on their head, right? Isn't that the point of having mercy, that we're, we're heaping coals on people, you know? Uh, we're showing them what's, what the real deal is just by, by having that mercy, maybe stick it to them, you know? Man, aren't you glad that's not God's attitude with the mercy he has on us, right? That he just wants to heap coals on us. But, but that's what we think the point could be in having mercy, but I'm not sure because Jesus continues to talk about this topic throughout Matthew, and we're gonna reference a few of these sections today, but right now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18, okay? And turn over just a few pages from Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Jesus is still teaching about mercy here, and, and, and this story specifically refer, refers to people inside the community of God. Um, why, do you, why do you say that? Well, because Peter begins with a provocative question here in verse 21. Peter came to him, this is Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Peter should have stopped there. 
Because then he says, up to seven times. This is a story about mercy, right? And Peter's asking, okay, yeah, 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 but realistically, how many times do I forgive them before it, you know, enough is too much, right? Peter's very uh, pragmatic here, but he's also giving himself away a little bit. Peter is showing his colors. You see, I, I don't know exactly what the leading line means there, um, but, but Peter may well have had an ongoing offense in mind when he asked this question. You know, he's probably thinking about something that has happened seven or eight times. And he's like, I've, I've already done this seven times, you know? How many times do I need to have mercy on a brother? I think Peter probably looks something like this. And uh, Peter was, he, he uh, I like to imagine the disciples as being on this like, you know, continual few year mission trip with Jesus, you know? Uh, the disciples followed him, they traveled with him, they journeyed from place to place, ate a lot of their meals together. They probably had a favorite roadside, you know, trout stand where they would do like smoked fish on a barbecue and, and, and like Peter was secretly hoping that Jesus was gonna take them back there before they went back to Jerusalem, you know? Like that's, that's how I like to imagine the interactions. Well, well, on this big long mission trip, um, Maybe Thomas. Yeah, let's pick Thomas. He was probably exactly the kind of man that you would refer to as like a mouth breather or a bully, you know, a jokester. Um, maybe we'll call him Tommy. He probably looked like this, right? Um, so, so together, the mission trip felt a little crazy because here's what happened. Um, Tommy, every day at the meal, was dumping salt in, in Peter's drink, right? And that's how it went. Day after day, and, and Tommy would say, Richard, I mean, Peter, look in your drink, Peter, you know, and, and, uh, and then Peter would take a drink, oh, there's salt in my drink, and you know, Tommy would just laugh his butt off, and he thought it was the funniest thing, right? It's just a little prank, right? Uh, why Thomas? Well, he gets a bad rep sometimes, uh, and my sense of justice tells me he probably deserves it, so we'll just pile on the disciple Thomas this morning. Now, Peter thought it was hilarious the first 10 or 12 times, right? But now it's just getting to be annoying, and he's ready for Tommy to cut it out, right? It's making him secretly angry. He's asked Tommy to stop, but Tommy won't do it, and he ends up just kind of miffed off at, at Tommy and, and, and just fuming a lot, like ready to, to be angry. And in this place of frustration, Peter asks Jesus, ah, so how many times do I have to forgive a brother, right? Seven times? Because it's every day, you know? Let's imagine him thinking that. And then Jesus drops this bombshell. Jesus says, seven times 70. I don't say to you up to seven times, Peter, but up to 70 times, seven times. In effect, Jesus is saying that an unlimited number of offenses is covered in this mercy. And this must have kind of frustrated Peter, right? Especially when he looked across the circle and there was Tommy going, <laughs> right? Today at lunch. Yeah, no. But still, 
even just a little salty drink prank like that, right? Um, it left Peter feeling frustrated a little bit. I'm not contending to you that that's actually what Peter was asking about. Just an example. But for many of us, we ask that question about things a little bit more serious than a salty drink, right? Maybe you look across the room at church this morning and you see a a best friend, a person who used to be a best friend. And now they sit with other people and they don't really reach out to you. You've lost relationship with them. You feel betrayed or you feel abandoned. And that is what you feel like. I've forgiven them up to seven times. Like what, what more can I do? They've wronged me here, you know? Or, or, or maybe you see some people from a small group that you used to be a part of and it's pretty clear they're still having small group. You just aren't getting the invite anymore. And that's the that's the offense that you feel upset about, right? Or maybe you feel like the person who offended someone else. You see a person uh, that you're friends with, they asked you to, to help them out with a home project, and you know you never followed through, you never came over, and now you're just avoiding them because you don't want them to bring it up because it's awkward, and you feel like maybe you're the one that messed things up. Or maybe it really is just like a, a salty drink prank. There's a person in your life here at church that just grinds your gears a little bit, you know? Maybe they call you the wrong name on purpose or something, right? Just gets you aggravated and just a little bit under your skin. Um, But none of these are valid excuses, no matter how big or how small, to hold each other in a place of contempt in our hearts. Whether it's a small habit or a big betrayal, the message of Jesus is pretty clear. Mercy must have a place in our hearts for each other. But outside of these walls, things get even dicier, right? Uh, Perhaps there's people in this town that my stomach just sinks when I see them because of the way they treated me at my last job or at my last uh, church that I went to before here, right? And, And my stomach just goes, oh, it's them again. You know, and I, and I avoid them or I'm frustrated with them. Um, I find myself happy, you know, when I hear that them or their church is going through hard times. I know I shouldn't be, but secretly I feel kind of happy because I'm, I'm upset at them and they've wronged me. And maybe part of me feels like they deserve that trouble, right? I'm not, I'm just speaking from my experience. I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone struggles like that. But that is a challenge because that's not a merciful heart in me, you know? Or or perhaps there's a person that I went to school with, and I hear that here here in Mina, um, they're kind of the mastermind behind this uh, gay pride parade that's going to happen in the park. And immediately, you know, my mind snaps and, and I make judgments, and I, I, I share harsh comments with other people, you know? Um, I, I give mean looks to them or their group when I see them in public. I gossip about them. And, and, and mercy is, is slaughtered in my heart before I even blinked. Judgment, harshness, justice, those are the things I think I'm standing for. But mercy, what Jesus asked me to have, is nowhere present, right? 
my standing disposition is seldom one of mercy. And I feel the Lord asking me to shift that perspective. You know, social media too can bring out the worst in a lot of us. And I'm on those platforms and off of them and I, I get on and off, right? But I notice a lot of us jumping on our, you know, right-leaning chariots doing a victory lap because of Roe v. Wade, which is really a great success. But I, but I see, too, that maybe there are, are souls that don't know Jesus being trampled under the wheel of that cart, especially when I look down to the comment sections where there's rage and dissent and name-calling, and not all of it from the other side. How is that mercy? And I'm not saying we should not celebrate. I'm not saying that, 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 that we shouldn't be ecstatic about what the Lord is doing. But we have to consider what a heart, how it could be interpreted, how it could be felt. And, and then when there is a response, we have to consider what is merciful. If you guys would, let's, uh, let's take a deep breath. Everybody breathe in and breathe out, right? I know it got tense for a minute. So let's go to the scripture. That's, not, uh, that's, that's nothing too scary, right? Because Jesus responds to Peter, not just with the 70 times seven, but he, he, he responds with a story about a merciful master, and I wanna read part of it together this morning. Okay, so you know this story probably, but let's track through it. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but, but 70 times seven, verse 23, he goes on, he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Just gonna let you know ahead of time that certain king is God the Father. Let's just imagine God the Father is the king. And when God had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. The message version of the Bible equates that to about $100,000. The servant was brought to the king who owed him $100,000. Go on, verse 25. But he was not able to pay. So his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and the payment be made by selling this man and his family into slavery, right? But the servant fell down before the king, and he said, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant, says God, was moved with compassion. He released him, and he forgave him the debt. First half of the story Jesus sets up, God had mercy. God had mercy. Let's go on. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which, again, referencing the message Bible here, equates it to about 10 bucks. How much was the servant forgiven? $100,000? He found a servant that owed him $10, and he laid his hands on him, took him by the throat, and said, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's setting up a parallelism here between God and the first servant 
and then the first servant and the second servant. We don't know what the power dynamic was, but the situation was very similar, except the currency of the second situation was far less than what the master had forgiven the first servant. He falls down, he says, have mercy, please, I will pay it all, I'll pay you back. But the, the servant, the first servant, he would not. He went and he threw him in a prison till he should pay back the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved. And they came and told their master all that had been done. So then the master, going back to the king, the master, God, after he had, had called the servant, he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Hold, this, this word compassion, this word pity, you know, those are wrapped up in this definition of Matthew 5's mercy. That word mercy, it is a tendency toward mercy combined with action, but it wraps up in there these connotations of philanthropy, a person that has a lot giving to a person that has none. It wraps up in there this idea of pity, being moved in your heart so much for a person or compassion, realizing the need, feeling it and trying to help. All of that is wrapped up in this mercy. And God the Father is saying, can't you see, I had that for you. I extended that to you and you did not. So the master was angry and he delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to each of you from his heart, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother who trespasses. The master's mercy was not concerned about what he was losing or what he was giving up. The deficit was large. But the master didn't even, he didn't even balk at that number. He didn't even make the servant come up with a strategy to pay it back if he forgave him. It was based on his love for that man. He realized the great need of that servant. And that is the mercy we must take on for others. Unfortunately, I see more of myself in the unforgiving servant. Because, because here's the truth of the matter. Why did the servant do that? Was he stupid, you know? Because I don't feel that about myself, right? I hope, hope none of us do. But there's an easy explanation, and I think you'll see it too. I think the servant must have forgotten about the mercy he had received. There is no other explanation. If the servant had any kind of memory of that hundred grand that had been wiped off the table, he might have had a little mercy. 
He must have forgotten. And don't I do the same. I have a knack for begging for mercy, just like that servant, especially if I make a mistake. My family, my, my, my sin, whatever it is, I beg the Lord, please, Lord, forgive me. Um, sometimes I, I even feel like, you know, I've been saved now by Jesus, and, and then I begin to feel like maybe my sin is, is far away from me, and then I hear of someone making the same mistake I made, and I have a thought like, well, I would never make that mistake, but I did, and I was forgiven for it, and I was made new, and yet I can be in the same scenario as that servant, doing the same thing. So how, how do I actually have mercy on another person? How do I refuse to hold them in contempt and, 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 and treat them with the same mercy that I was afforded by the master, right? I sense that it all comes back to where we started this series when Victor preached about blessed are the poor in spirit. Because here's the true sense of this. We have to continue to understand our need for mercy if we want to extend mercy. Because when I truly, deeply, thoughtfully realize my absolute need for God, my continuing need, my current need for his mercy, it changes the way I view others. It changes the way that I see them as deserving of God's grace or undeserving of God. It can change that whole perspective. But I have to continue to truly realize my need for God's mercy. That's where it begins. And I'm calling this, this kind of mercy that God's calling us to have God-described mercy. Because we don't have a great way to describe it outside of him. None of us are, are very good at having this level of mercy that the Lord has, but it's bigger than our concept of mercy. Like I mentioned a minute ago, it's related to compassion, empathy, pity, philanthropy, but it's bigger than all of those as well. But here are a couple of images that I think can help us put this mercy together. And I want to say this, it's not fair. That's kind of the point. It's not meant to be fair. The mercy God has for us is always to his detriment. He's losing money on us as an investment, right? If you want to look at it that way. But that, that is this mercy. Psalm 103 uses a word that's connected to, to Matthew 18 and that story of mercy, have pity on me. And it, it says it this way, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. The Lord pities those who fears him. This is directly describing the same act of compassion or mercy that is described in the Beatitudes. God so loves his child that he would choose mercy over judgment. Can I say that again? God loves his child so much he would choose mercy over judgment. And when you put this in the context of your own children, this helps with the perspective, right? Imagine for a moment that you had a friend and they were spreading rumors about you in the church or in your friend group and it began to be a thing where you felt hurt and betrayed and just like everyone's viewing you differently. 
it's not fair, it's agitating, it's, it's, it's horrible, honestly, right? And then, let me turn the table on you, you find out that friend is your child. It's your son or your daughter. You raised them from birth, and they're the ones offending you that way. Now, <laughs> my mercy wouldn't even hesitate. You know why? It would flow because my children mean more to me than the thought of being estranged from them. I would forgive them in a heartbeat because I want them around, because I love them so much. And yeah, it hurts, but I would forgive and let it go because I want them in my life. What if that unfair, biased kind of love is what God is calling us to have for other people? That we view them in the way that God views them. Hmm. Another, another great image to me, uh, it's a very similar image, comes from Isaiah 49. Again, this is coming from a... a uh, a study on that word mercy from the Beatitudes and other sections in scripture that reference that same kind of mercy. And this one jumped out at me. Isaiah 49, 15 says, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? And it says, surely they may forget, right? Yet I will not forget you. This is the same image, but it takes it even a step further. God is reaching us with the tender mercy of a woman and her little child. Now, some, some women can fail at that, at that job of being a, a mother to a child, but God said, I will not. I will be the good mother. That's the perspective that God's mercy has for you. He won't abandon you or lay you down or leave you to fight on your own. And, 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 and that is the mercy that we're to emulate, that he calls us to emulate. The book of Hosea tells this story well. God reconciling back to himself his lost kids. Many of you have heard this story, but I'm just going to briefly summarize it. Um, God uses Hosea, a prophet of God, to illustrate a big concept so he tells Hosea, the prophet, to go and be married to a woman of the night named Gomer. The Bible describes her this way, and I love this. It's, it's interesting. She was a wife of harlotry. That's what she's called. She was not a clean woman, right? And in the book of Hosea, it doesn't take her even a minute to be untrue to Hosea. She begins to cheat. She begins to prostitute herself, uh, to lie, to mistreat him. And, and in today's world, I was thinking through this, what would we say about Gomer? We would say, well, she's abusing him. She's taking advantage of him. She's, she's, you know, and we would have all kinds of mean slurs, I'm sure, to throw her way about how she treated Hosea. Because he's right. She's wrong. God speaks to Hosea again, though, in the middle of this abuse, and actually, Gomer had, had done so much wrong, she had found herself back in slavery, in a position of slavery to this profession of prostitution. And he speaks to Hosea, and God says, 
doesn't say turn away, go find a woman worth your time. No, God says to Hosea, go to Gomer. Pay your own money and get her out of slavery and renew your marriage vows to her. That was the message that came from God Almighty to a prophet of God who had already married this woman, knowing it wasn't gonna turn out well, and then she turned her back and left him and lied and cheated and stole and abused, and God said, go back to her, purchase her back, renew your vows to her. Why? The book of Hosea is a historical account, an event, but it also is an allegory to how God loves his people. It's an image of how God chooses to have mercy on us because the truth is for my life, God chose to have mercy on me in my worst state. He chose to forgive me and allow me new life and purpose. So who am I to stand in the way of that for someone else? Because God did that for me. He had mercy on me when I didn't deserve it, when I was as bad off as Gomer, lying and cheating and not caring about the consequences, and yet he saved me there. And he asked me to have that same mercy in my heart for other people. As we wrap up here, Matthew 12, again, I told you we're gonna reference a few sections in Matthew. Matthew 12 has a really neat little story. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. You've probably heard this his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and eat them. And, and when the Pharisees see it, they say to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. It happened to be on a Sabbath day. The Pharisees appeared and they began rebuking Jesus and his disciples. Jesus, your disciples are doing what's not lawful. And Jesus talks to them for a moment, defending his followers, and he ends that fiery speech to the Pharisees with a very provocative line. He says this, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And I can sense this in our day and age and well, as well. In those Pharisees' minds, there was no doubt about right versus wrong. In fact, like my wife and I, they had probably been dis discussing it at length for hours. And they had all agreed that it is absolutely wrong by the scripture to pluck grain on the Sabbath, to work on a Sabbath. And they had a great idea of what was right. And they knew it. There was no doubt that's why they felt the boldness that they could to just walk up and tell them like it was, we are right and you guys are doing something absolutely wrong. The gall of you people picking grain on a Sabbath. And Jesus calls them guiltless. Jesus calls them guiltless. Maybe there's someone you've thought of this morning as we're discussing mercy, someone you are holding something in your heart against them. Jesus calls them guiltless. 
can feel kind of infuriating, honestly. And yet it's the mercy Jesus is calling us to have. Even better here, Jesus, Jesus uses a word, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's a quote from an Old Testament prophet. It's a quote from the book of Hosea. Jesus is scripturally referencing the impenitent, rebellious nature of the people of Israel, as discussed in the book of Hosea. And still, with all that offense piled up, he says, I desire mercy. I desire mercy. In other words, Pharisees, you're missing the point. Just like Israel did back then. Just like Zeke so often misses the point. God wants mercy from us. A mercy that because of our experience in our relationship to God, freely extends mercy, extends compassion to others, even to our own detriment at times. Let me read that again. Because of our relationship to God, we extend compassion to others, even to our own detriment. Would you bow your heads with me and let's, uh, let's prepare. Jesus, we just, we ask you, Lord, to, to move in this place because I know this is a tough message and it's one that's really easy for us to go, yeah, but that's kind of, everybody lives that way, right? Everybody just talks about, you know, oh, that's right, that's wrong, that person's horrible, you know, whatever. But Lord, I just, I just sense in my heart that you're showing me that that was never how we as your kingdom people were supposed to be marked by having a strong sense of right and wrong and punishment. Ultimately, we're a bunch of people who, who didn't get what we deserved. And if we could just remember that, that, that we deserved death, punishment, hell. I deserved hell. But you did something different. You forgave my deficit. If we could just latch on to that, Lord, the light that would flow out of this church as we live from a place of mercy for each other. Somebody offends us, man, we believe the best, we forgive, we give grace. Lord, we need you. We're about to sing, and I just encourage you, as we sing, would you just consider, is there someone in your life that has wronged you? Or maybe this morning, you feel like, well, the biggest kind of mistake or event in my life recently is all my fault. I don't need to have mercy, I need to receive mercy. I need these people who are hating me right now to, to have mercy on me. 
I think the answer is the same for all of us. We need to fall on our face and remember that God first had mercy on us. And from that place of man, I'm poor in spirit and I am nothing without the mercy of God. From that place, we can begin to sing out a new song. A song of mercy, a song of reconciliation, a song of light for this dark world. Thank you.